0: Staging Sound, a podcast reflecting on theatre music, sound design, sonic practices and experiences. If you all want to come a little closer, we don't have to shout. That'd be great if you feel like it. Okay, so welcome again uh, properly. My name is David Rösner. I'm a professor at the theatre department here at the LMU. And I'm also the convener of a research group called Sound. Hang on. What is it called? It's (laughs) called uh, Sound of Theater. That's what it's called, which is a research group facilitated by the TSAS or the Center for Advanced Studies uh, here at the LMU as well. We're very grateful to have that group because it allows us to get some time and play and sort of um, be together. And these are two of the ten fellows uh, and they sort of come in batches. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. there's always a few here and we uh, embark on discussions and projects. And one project, I should say, which is why I'm wearing headphones, you've been wondering, is he listening to the sports in the background? Mm -hmm. No, he's not. Um, These are microphones as well. So what we're doing with all this is uh, we're recording this session because one of the the ways in which we want to engage with the world is a new podcast which has just launched its third episode. Uh, So if you want to find that, it's called Staging Sound. Uh, And it's on on all the platforms. And ideally, this will become another episode. And now I'll introduce uh, our esteemed uh, panel, because I'm I'm very happy for you both to be here. Um, So We've got Duska Radosavjevic. She's an academic. She's a critic. She's been a a dramaturg and is still a dramaturg. She has uh, roots in Yugoslavia, but has sort of been shaped by the UK uh, intellectually, academically, personally uh, because of being there for a very very long time. She's now based in Lund in Sweden um, but is still affiliated to the Central School of Speech and uh, Drama of the University of London as a professorial research fellow. She has worked on a number of topics, theater criticism being one, ensemble theater, and theater making being another one. That's two books that you've, uh, you brought out a few years ago, which I highly recommend to any theater scholars or students in the room. And she's also, and that's something we'll talk about today, produced uh, an extensive website called oralia.space and an, do you want to hold it up, sort of a, 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 oh, a, book. a, a joint book, another joint book which is sort of in, in strong dialogue with that website and with her recent um, research project, which was called Oral and Oral, so one time spelled with A-U, Aural and Oral Dramaturgies, Theatre in the Digital Age. Lynn Kendrick is also currently working. (laughs) No, Mm -hmm. she's also working. She's been working there for a long time and will continue to do so at Royal uh, School of Speech, not Royal Central School of Speech and Drama. It's always a mouthful. Uh, she's a reader there for new theatre practices and leads a number of courses uh, to do really with the next generation of theatre makers, one could say. Um, and she's not only done that as a sort of an academic and teacher, but also uh, really as a director and a, a co-founder of the Camden, I always have to look it up here, yeah, Camden People's Theatre, that's what it's called, which has been going for a long while and has been uh, a springboard for young talent and for really for new aesthetics and new ways of working and has worked in that area a lot. I had the pleasure to co edit a book with Lynn uh, about 11 years ago, it's been a while, uh, which was called Theatre Noise The Sound of Performance. And more recently, in 2017, uh, Lynn published another book, uh, sort of in that area, called Theatre Orality, which has really become a core text on on um, sounding practices and and audiences and engagements and so forth, and spaces and, and, and so forth, and ethics as well. So so that's, you can see there's a thread here which is to do with sound, musicality uh, and these kind of things. And that's kind of what we, we felt we could ho- hopefully offer to this particular conference and to this gathering here, because, of course, in the, the research on Theatre Sound, the various crises, but in our case particularly, the COVID crisis had a had a strong impact, uh, both very directly on your project, Duska, which you will talk mm-hmm. about, because it, it, it's kind of the lockdown came just when you were about to get into the room with a lot of people mm. and sort of do, do experiments and, and work with sound and theatre and that didn't happen in that particular way. And also it's something that Yulin have observed in, in other people's uh, work, in their practices, how they responded, how they found strategies of coping with being banned from the public sphere is essentially or banned from theatres and that's something that's shaping up your, your research. So this this panel is going to be a a mixture of conversation and presentation. We will focus quite a lot on UK examples of practice or works that respond to the sonic possibilities of theatre during a pandemic, during pandemic practices, and talk hopefully also a little bit positively about the the opportunities that also created, I think, uh, not just sort of what it prohibited, but also what avenues opened up. And we'll start with Dushka telling us, so we have a sort of a temporal logic to the presentation in that Dushka will reflect back a little bit on her project, which has now with the with the finished website and the finished book has sort of concluded in some way. So we'll talk about that first. And then Lynn talks a little bit more about prospective research triggered by and inspired by some of the things you've seen during the pandemic, Dushka.
1: Thank you. Um, Actually, thank you, David, uh, for creating this space for us to think together and to meet uh, new people to enter into a conversation with. And thank you for doing this conceptual framing for uh, what we are doing, because that's kind of cut a lot of what I was going to say as introduction for for my contribution to this panel, which is basically just a story of how this research project unfolded um, during the COVID-19 pandemic. The more cogent and uh, discursive outcome of that research is in the book. Yeah, I'll just tell you the story very briefly of this project. So... This was a project funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council in the United Kingdom. Um, It was a leadership fellowship and it started in January 2020. I'll just give you like a little uh, overview of what the sort of research was. I was very much interested in what I was observing as trends in contemporary uh, British theatre. And not just British. I mean, there is a a kind of wider cultural and intercultural dimension to that. But what I was noticing was what um, I was hoping to frame as a paradigm shift towards contemporary theatre makers uh, turning uh, to sound uh, more as their primary um, kind of... uh, component in uh, in their dramaturgical work. And Lynn has actually written this wonderful book, uh, Theatre Orality, that explores this um, in a more ontological way and in, in terms of the affordances of sound as a technology and as a, and as a phenomenon in these dramaturgies. Um, and I was interested to actually engage with the question in a sort of bottom-up approach by looking at the empirical evidence available and to somehow uh, draw uh, maybe some uh, insights uh, from that. Also, I expanded the notion of oral, as in AU oral, um, to include oral as well, which um, I was hoping to account uh, for the notions of documentary theatre, like verbatim theatre um, and testimonial theatre that was very present in the UK in the in the early 21st century, and that I was noticing was acquiring a slightly different dimension, more post-dramatic dimension um, in some specific cases. Sorry, these are the the basic research questions that we started uh, off with. So we were interested in compositional strategies that underpin the performance making um, in the 21st century, specifically with uh, regard to orality and aurality. We set out to um, scope a theoretical framework for this uh, dramaturgy and to explore correlations between um, technological developments with these uh, contemporary performance-making practices. The methodology originally was, um, of course, there, I was going to work with a postdoctoral associate because these HSE uh, research funding schemes um, often require partnerships with organizations. Our partners were uh, Victoria and Albert Museum, um, Battersea Arts Centre and Digital Theatre Plus. So, Victoria and Albert Museum was uh, included in the project because of the the notable trend um, that that was present in in their work that was using sound in their exhibition uh, work. Uh, So, some of the examples included the David Bowie exhibition, the opera exhibition, and I was interested in what... um, effect uh, or what what findings they were kind of coming up with from from within their sector. But that uh, aspect of the research became less present in the actual um, delivery of the project. Uh, We we primarily worked with Battersea Arts Centre which is an independent theatre in South London that has a long history in specifically nurturing uh, and developing new work using a particular format known as scratch performance. This means an artist or a group of artists would be contracted to scratch an idea, to work on an idea for a week or two weeks at a time, and then present the outcome of that work to an audience, and then take the audience's uh, response into that process and continue working on the same idea in cycles. And this might take a long period of time, but the idea was that they could use this as part funding towards bigger applications, funding applications that they were putting to the Arts Council. Uh, With Battersea Art Center, we selected four artists that we wanted to focus on and go into their rehearsals to document them using rehearsal ethnography. The the artists we selected included, I need to name check them because we mentioned one of them in the abstract and also because maybe Lynn will um, also refer to this artist, uh, Silvia Mercuriali, an Italian artist that works with headphone theater. The, the selection also included S.K. Shlomo, who was a beatboxer and who proposed a project where he was going to deal with autobiography basically through beatboxing um, and tell a story of overcoming mental illness. We selected a group of dancers, Called uh, Graceful Collective, who were going to uh, explore uh, climate crisis using uh, voice and dance in a particular project, and um, the fourth artist was uh, Sarah Gates, who was uh, an artist based in San Francisco um, and who wanted to explore what they referred to as neo ventriloquism as a strategy in finding queer identities. Now, these artists were selected uh, through an open call and a kind of a selection process. We were going to bring each artist into uh, Battersea Arts Centre and work with them for a certain amount of time. But as soon as uh, we actually, uh, just as we were going to go into the room with the first of our artists, the lockdown started. So we um, found ourselves in a situation where we just had to find ways working digitally uh, with each other. And, uh, of course, the hiatus meant that a lot of artists didn't know how they were going to continue working on these projects and uh, what uh, they were going to be able to achieve under these circumstances. I planned a number of outcomes as part of this application. Uh, The book was one of the planned outcomes, Uh, a conference was one of the planned outcomes, Um, And also, I was anticipating a lot of recorded footage, which I was going to deposit as a data set into Figshare, uh, which we used for these purposes, as well as possibly uh, use some of the footage to create a 12-part podcast for Digital Theatre Plus. So we decided to reconfigure the project and redirect the sort of idea around the conference into a series of Zoom conversations with uh, academics and a series of Zoom conversations with artists and sometimes conversations between artists and academics. And this website came out as another unplanned outcome of this project. We ended up with over 80 recordings. They are organized. We call the collection Lend Me Your Ears. Uh, and you can uh, navigate through the collection in a number of ways. I will very quickly just summarize it for you because sometimes people find it a bit like, where do I start? So um, there are a number of ways. There is a way of navigating through uh, the collection through by issue. We call it by issue or by theme. This is basically the organizing structure of the book itself you could browse by category of recordings. So we have interviews with artists, we have uh, conversations about sound between academics and artists in some cases. David was one of the contributors to this. We have making of documentaries because the first two styles of recording were just uh, sound recordings, just sound files. But then we thought, okay, since we're using Zoom, we we might as well have videos. So the second two... um, Categories are actually video recordings. So these are making-of documentaries where artists talk about a specific work that they uh, created using their personal archives about this project. I will uh, show you, for example, Silvia Mercuriali's making-of of of the piece she was making at the time called Swimming Home. Originally, this was going to be a, a headphones piece for swimming pools. The audience was going to be brought into a swimming pool with headphones and watch a real, real swimming session with real swimmers in it. But one of the swimmers was a performer and uh, there was going to be a soundscape that kind of created an, an extra layer to this um, experience, uh, which was the actual performance um, that she was proposing to make. But as a result of the lockdown, Sylvia created a piece to be listened to in your bathroom. And there are two versions, one for the bath and one for the shower. Uh, I do uh, recommend uh, looking this up. It, I think it's still possible to to do the piece in the comfort of your bathroom. And uh, here is also a, a recording of Sylvia talking about how she was thinking at the time about this piece. This wasn't at the point when she had made the piece, but at the point when she was still uh, working on it. And I just wanted to show you how we uh, present this material here. You can have the transcription of the recording here on the website. You can kind of follow um, both simultaneously, you could download the video episode, or you could download the transcript of um, uh, this uh, recording for teaching purposes. This was Laura Petrola's wonderful idea. Flora Petrola was the postdoctoral associate and curator of this project. This is the website, the completely un- unforeseen outcome of the crisis And I'm fully aware of the fact that this was a terrible time Um, and actually probably this conditioning whereby we were sitting inside our homes and not fully interacting in the public sphere meant that we weren't fully aware of the tragic aspect of uh, many people's lives uh, during that time. It had devastating effects uh, on people's livelihoods and was an impediment to a lot of other kinds of labor. Uh, So I need to acknowledge that while also saying, for us, it was an opportunity. It was also a methodological opportunity for me in terms of doing this research. And I reflect on that in quite a bit more detail in this book, by reference to theorists like Bruno Latour and the idea of the network, the network of insights that this um, repository makes available in terms of generating new, new knowledges. Uh, so, yeah, maybe I could stop here. That's a great point yeah. To, to, yeah.
0: to pose. And can I just ask a, a quick question before we hand over to, to Lynn? Because um, I think that's, that point is really interesting that a crisis shifted your methodology about not just the approach or the accessibility but really sort of the way of thinking about the artistic practices and the way of approaching them and obviously a lot of your research uh, which could not be ethnographically in the space would be conversational would be by listening would be by speaking by talking and and there's a trend obviously in sound studies and elsewhere there's a new i don't know if it's that new but for to me it was new new category the audio paper which there's a manifest, actually, in, in, in Sweden, I've forgotten which mm-hmm. university, uh, one of the institutes, they, they have sort of a, a whole manifest on how you do an audio paper as an academic, as a form of of publishing, essentially. Um, and I was, I was curious how you feel this year and a half of sort of doing thinking in sound, thinking in recordings, etc., how that then felt going back to the good old medium of the book because then mm. you, do you know what I mean? Because you say at, some, mm. at one point in the book, if this is a bit like me speaking, it is because it is a bit like me speaking. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so uh, can you can you say a little bit about the, the mediality almost? Or the, yeah. Or about, yeah, great, great, them? great.
1: Okay, yeah, there are a lot, of, I mean, several things I could say about that. I won't say all of them because uh, I want to try and give a coherent answer. But at the point of conception, when I was writing the project, one thing that I was quite keen to do with this conference that we were planning was to have... It is as a clause that every like as a as a sort of part of the invitation was going to be that everybody was invited to speak rather than read papers mm-hmm. at this conference or to propose another different sort of format that that might be uh, an alternative to writing. This is not because I'm challenging writing as a as a category because, as I said earlier I'm a better writer than speaker, but I was just interested in what not what Possibilities were contained in that. And actually, these salon conversations that you took part in, I haven't finished actually talking about the whole website because there is also a section where authors write, talk about the, the books they've written, and Lynn is in that section, in the library section. Um, um, and which I thought was actually, that was, I'm, I was very proud of that idea that we, we uh, ended up with that format of inviting a writer to summarize their book in 20 minutes. Not ideal, but we we accept that, uh, you know, we accept that in this day and age it's become impossible for everybody to be able to read each other's books from cover to cover. Um, So it's probably best to ask the writer to tell you what they wrote in it uh, or to try and uh, entice you into reading it. So these conversations we had um, were interesting because this was like inviting, in some cases, academics. I will, for example, highlight the one between Daphne Brooks and P.A. Scantz. This conversation was really, in fact, uh, organized as a playlist where these two academics are talking to each other about ideas of sound and music and history and identity, racial identity, by reference to a number of songs they want to play to each other. Because this was part of the invitation for the salons. We, we, this was another of Flora's brilliant ideas, um, that, that we, we were inviting people to come into a conversation with an audio clip that they would play to each other, and therefore stimulate conversation with each other. So we were scratching ideas for papers, hopefully, here, using uh, Battersea Art Centre's methodology of developing new artistic work and applying it to the academic context, you know. In some cases, people have gone on to produce papers, like, for example, Andrei Mircev and Julian Henriquez have uh, written this as a paper, Andre wrote it with Julian's per- permission. And Kate Bezik and Javon Johnson have written this, uh, theirs as a paper as well, which we published in a special collection, which I haven't managed, uh, mentioned as another one of our outcomes. We, we did uh, have a, an edited special issue for Critical Stages, the online journal. We were quite keen that all the research is open access, except for the book. But um, hopefully that will be available in your libraries so it already is
0: very good thank you so much Dushka we'll we'll keep going and then we'll open to questions at the end Uh, Lynn so how how did the pandemic and the 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 coping mechanisms of theater artists trigger you to think perhaps in a new way or to think of new avenues of of research in your own work and your own thinking
2: thank you well One of the things I've been thinking about and reflecting on a lot is how during the global pandemic, theatre-making and production, but also I think daily life and daily interaction really drew attention to orality. And this is everything from having to sort of consciously tune in to streamed events, digital events, but the particular act of having to make sure whether or not you're audible, mute or unmute on Zoom... Um, or more full-on uh, engaging in and downloading audio, art, um, audio experiences. Uh, so there is a shift, I think, uh, across all uh, sort of quotidian experience and in art, thinking about the theme of this conference and how it responds, how crisis and art respond to each other. There was a more conscious engagement in ways in which we might listen, ways in which we plug into sound, and therefore more engagement in orality. But I think it's important to point out in terms of theatre-making in the UK in particular that most companies are not building-based in the way that perhaps they are here. So, of course, the UK response to the pandemic, the crisis of the pandemic, for subsidised building-based venues was to live stream, raid the digital archive. But for most companies they had to find another alternative to not having the space other than the ordinary spaces that we all had, our homes and the outside on the occasion that we were allowed outside. So there was an interesting turn also to audio art as a way of reinventing these other spaces, as a way of coping, of of working without space and also responding to the restrictions of space that we found ourselves in. And this is also why there is this surge, uh, this change, shift in relationship with sound, and um, shift in relationship with listening. And this is what I've been thinking about um, during the pandemic. Um, so, in the UK, of course, there was a particular boom in audio walks, in sound experiences, sonic experiences that you could download to augment the sort of once a day exercise that we were allowed um, to take out and about course a lot of us did more than that but uh, officially it was one walk a day and how were you going to make something of that walk but the other thing I've been interested in is that there's been a surge of interest in what uh, Dushka referred to earlier as headphone theatre and niche work and it really was niche work by artists such as Silvia Mercuriali and by Darkfield who I'll talk about a bit more in a moment. Um, suddenly experienced a significant increase in their popularity, in the reach of their work. So there was also this this strange opportunity that arose for particular audio-led or sound-led forms of theatre and performance. So Sylvia's project um, was initially to be in a site specific project in a swimming pool became a downloadable you can still download it you still had to pay for it still download it and listen to it in your bath or in the shower with a bucket she will explain that and As a consequence, this work was downloaded as as far as Vancouver, and Darkfield also found their work downloaded to and listened to as far as Saudi Arabia, and that actually initiated a collaboration with them as well. So the reach of the work, uh, an opportunity in response to crisis that was perhaps unexpected at the time. Headphone theatre, I just want to briefly explain headphone theatre, I know it sounds obvious, but it's worth mentioning. Obviously, it involves on-ear or in-ear, or also sometimes haptic modes of audience, primarily engaging in listening, but not in the same way as we would be, obviously, assembled in an audience in a theatre. But more crucially, more often not, involves bin hour recording, which, of course, I'm sure you all know, but is different from stereo, which might mark out the dimensions of a room, but bin hour recording places the listener within the room places for listener within the experience. And this is what makes Headphone Theatre not radio. Uh, I'm often having to um, answer that particular accusation Mm -hmm. or question. No, it's not radio. Even though confusingly, Darkfield do call themselves Darkfield Radio. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Maybe we can talk about that later in a moment. Headphone Theatre involves headphones, OBS, But it really is um, structurally as well as its main uh, mode of transmission. So it's the head to phone that is crucial. And this relationship between the listener, the head of the listener, and the phone, the voice, is also a part of the structure of the work. So we are not just listening to innocuous things, bird tweets, happening in lovely... We are sometimes listening to bird tweets happening um, in three-dimensionality, but more often than not, we are positioned by the relationship between the speaker, the person we're listening to, and our ear. And that relation in headphone theatre often happens structurally, dramatically, and dramaturgically, and as a form of staging as well. The other important thing to say about headphone theatre is that sound operates independently of the visual. Sometimes this is a wholesale attempt in forms of theater like theater in the dark. Though of course one can still argue the visual is still there in many ways, but in terms of the actual operations of that event of theater, darkness is uh, something that goes hand in hand with headphone theater or certainly may have the visual object present that isn't the one that you're listening to. So the idea of the audio walk, of course, sometimes might describe the actual space that you're in. But in audio theatre walks, they are re-describing and reinventing the spaces you're in. So the sound is in a dialogic, sometimes resistive relationship with the visual object um, of that event. And then this surge of interest in orality during the pandemic and headphone theatre... I think it's been very interesting that these small scale, quite nerdy forms of theatre, um, which I'm, I have always been particularly interested in. And I programmed as well um, quite early on at Counter People's Theatre. These are the surge in popularity in something was very niche is also very interesting. So dark field On headphone theatre, now you can find them in shipping containers, uh, moving around to festivals and to main cities, and they started producing their headphone theatre inside shipping crates. And I'll give an example in a moment. But the real mainstream example, of course, which you may have heard of, is the production The Encounter by Complicite. This was a piece of theatre where the binaral recording device, the binaral head, actually features in the piece of theatre uh, in the stage. It is centre stage. It's there as a recording device. as up for a live feed. It also stands in for characters within the play. Um, it is a wholesale mainstream theatre embracing of theatre orality. And I was very pleased when um, Simon McBurney and... Gareth Fry, the sound designer, who he credits as a performer in the piece, um, when that collaboration started, and they continue to collaborate um, in binaral dramas. And there's one you can uh, listen to now, available on BBC World Service, called "The Dark Is Rising." It's been shared mm-hmm. uh, over the over New Year. Um, so. There has been a movement and an interest in the industry in the UK in particular towards theatre orality. And I do consider headphones theatre in particular to be uh, a part of this genre, dare I say, of theatre orality. I was going to talk a bit about active orality because that's in the title of our panel. And I'll just briefly mention an example of how this work which really plays with the possibilities of difference between the visual and the aural, can also be activist. And one example of this is um, the work by global majority theatre artist called Ali Poole, a black female theatre artist turned sound artist. And she makes work which is based on her identity and who she is, but it is on the sonic manifestation of her identity and who she is, not fixed upon her visual appearance. And by that, I mean not indexed to her movement as a black woman into white person spaces. So that's not the first encounter with her identity That might be the second or third, but the first encounter in these works is with her as an aural presence, which is much more moot. And she can play with that mootness. She's not trying to not sound like a black woman, if you see what I mean. But her first entry into meaning, entry into the aesthetics of her work is through sound. And it gives a very interesting latitude and relationship between agency and identity and performance which I've written about elsewhere, but I think it's always worth mentioning because often in headphone theatre, we have really gaming-style stories, don't we? Sort of boys' own stories. And um, Darkfield works. You can, you know, uh, experience a plane crash, a seance. Uh, You can be put into a coma. They're very, like, early game. They're a bit Resident Evil-like series in terms of early gaming But they've actually taken a move into some different stories, and I'll give an example of one in a moment. But key to this example I've just described of Ali Poole's work is the fact that headphone theatre, by dint of its binaurality, positions the listener. And positions the listener in relation to the work in a way that, that can often throw a, question, a series of questions and a series of doubts about what we are listening to and who we are in that listening experience. I've referred to this as sonic intersubjectivity, but Joshka's also referred to it as interrelationality between the audience and the work. So what I'm going to do now, I'm just checking the time. I'm just going to read something that I've written about a piece of work by Darkfield. I've got the... Um, Oh sorry. Uh, the sorry, URL sorry. open I think for Darkfield okay. on There we are. Which one? Uh, it's intravene. Mm-hmm. Intravene is a crate show, so a show in a shipping container in the dark with for ten people each individually wearing headphones and it is made through banal recording. Intravene is a new piece of work by Darkfield um, that is about the drugs crisis in Vancouver and uh, uses a lot of actual footage, verbatim uh, interviews um, with people who, who feature in the work as well. So I'm just going to read a bit of what I've written um, and then we'll make, there's a particular clip I'll come mm-hmm. to in a sec. Okay. A constant low drone fills the shipping container in our headphones. A semi-reassuring voice tells us not to worry. You're not dead yet. It was a last-minute decision for Darkfield to stage, intervene in a shipping container, as this production was destined for Darkfield Radio's website to be downloaded and listened to worldwide amid pandemic. It still will be, but it's an interesting decision to locate this headphone theatre piece in the intimacy of this shipping container, potentially with ten others, though I was the only person who went to see it on the occasion that I did. Um... This is Darkfield's plunge into an area of keen interest for the creative team, developing the form of headphone theatre with what they refer to as audio journalism, focusing on documentary recordings of lived experiences and mapping these into the dark, binaural sonosphere of drones, jolting sounds, etc. that have really become their trademark. This first foray into the binaural reel takes us to Vancouver, Canada, and into the heart of the city's drug-taking culture, and the community's efforts to support those most at risk. Intravene places us in a safe drug-taking centre, which is manned by volunteer ex-addicts. We are invited into a safe space that supports us taking heroin. They're more likely fentanyl or benzene or benzene, as these are drugs of choice that can actually take the edge off heroin. But first, on the loud bang of a scene change, it's actually more like a scene plunge, we are suddenly semi-underwater, with the constant sound of water dripping, waiting for our number to be called. On the deli ticket system, a voice tells us we are number 1000. Fifty-three. A voice in our right ear says, this room is impossible to imagine. Boom. We are back in the drug taking centre and we hear an interview with an addict who talks about the 30 seconds that he can imagine during a recent drug overdose. Only 30 seconds out of 48 hours, which appear like Polaroids or snapshots of memory to him. The head of the centre then enters ear right to tell us of the services they offer In our left ear, we're told, This table is yours. And we are asked what we are using. Frequently, left ear woman asks if we're okay. Someone else in our right ear then asks for our code name. Apparently, we're Trudeau. We already have a Trudeau, a voice behind his complaints. Okay, then we're Trudeau too. There's a lot of binaral cacophony, arguments, shouting, tables and chairs crashing over, and there's a barking dog who's called Zelda who checks for signs of life during our fixes and alerts the centre staff if any of us suddenly become unresponsive. What's interesting about Intravene is that it positions us in different ways than other dark field productions. We are sometimes a visitor at this drug centre, sometimes we are the interviewer. We are spoken to as if we have inquired about the services, but other times we are an addict eavesdropping on the interview, listening to the workings of the centre and the deadening of the experience, the need to, quote, not let anyone die. In the centre, in the drug taking centre, pardon me, our position is more moot. In the ER, we are an overdosing addict. Boom, back into the centre, and the interview is still taking place, but it begins to fade into the banal distance. These are the first sonic effects that are applied to the addict's voices. But they are not all augmented, they are fading further away into the banality. The effect of distancing from us signals that we finally had our fix. Suddenly Zelda is doing her nut, and two volunteers are trying to resuscitate us. Boom, back to the ER, Each time we punch back into this space, the soundscape intensifies. There is now breathing, and lots of it, as we are told that our own breathing is slowing. We are administered drugs as the sounds of single-use plastics are ripped open around our heads. To either side, the water now is pouring. We are administered Narcan and CPR. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, four Mississippi. There's no particular panic this happens all the time. We are OD number 1053. So that's just a short description of my listening experience. Thank you.
0: Great. Thank you so much, both of you. Uh, we've got a few minutes for questions. Uh, so if you have any already, or if you need me to, oh yeah, this was straight mm. off, yeah, great. At this point, I'm afraid I have to intervene briefly as the moderator of this podcast. We did go to questions at this stage of the panel, but failed to record them adequately, which is why I will simply rephrase them here. The first question was about the social nature of headphone theatre and whether it was a shared experience or very much an individual experience due to the solitude under the headphones.
2: Yes, uh, is it- Shall I answer that? Yeah, can you go one? Um, yes, I, uh, it is very much an individual experience, and I think that's also played upon um, by a number of artists who work um, with these technologies. There's that phrase alone together, which has been attributed to a few people, actually. I'm trying to remember who I've often quoted it. As being from, uh, but alone together was something which described um, early radio listening or early gramophone listening, whereby you'd have you know one gramophone in and in one or radio or a wireless in a house, and everyone's listening to the same live broadcast, but separately. So that nice, interesting principle, whatever you'd like to call it, of technology remains, but it becomes something which is then features. Um, as a part of uh, this type of work. So, for example, in seance, <laughs> there you're, you go into a, a shipping container uh, with the lights on with, with 11 other people and sit down and you put your hands on the table, then your headphones, and then uh, into darkness. So it still plays with the fact that you are listening to those other people as if they are in the room, but everyone is, is listening to the same thing. So everyone is listening... Um, to the other people, also being those other people in the room, and then they feature hourly, so somebody's killed off by a bear that comes that they accidentally conjure up in the seance uh, over there in the, the right hand corner, and you, you can place that as being you know the nice student who walked in with you five minutes ago, but everyone is listening to that moment uh, in other another versions of headphone theaters sometimes we feature as a character. And in uh, Ring by Darkfield, uh, we are Francis, which can be the either the male-identifying or the female-identifying versions of that name. Uh, but we're all Francis. But the play is, as, as this voice always speaks just here, just by our left ear, Francis, you're OK. You can stay where you are. You don't have to move your chair, things, things like that. So we're all individually being described the same thing, but this sense that we are a part of this collective then becomes a kind of sonic sleight of hand, if that makes sense.
0: This is me again rephrasing a question. At this point, someone in the audience asked about Brendan Labelle's research on sonic agency and came to the question of what happens to sociality when it is transformed to another medium.
2: It's great that you brought up Brandon yeah, Labelle. Yeah. I really like um, uh, Labelle's text on sonic agency mm. and the more recent one, the name escapes me, colleagues will tell me in a second. Mm. So so my my quick response would be that what what we have there is is sound as a as a, a connecting and a community generating thing. Because it can't be seen. So as I recall, Brandon LaBelle talks about voices in particular being activists because they can be shared in ways that can't be captured, can't be seen. Um, They have reach. They have connectivity that can take place um, without being um, uh, found out, without being arrested. There is this flow and reach and extent of the voice. And what I find interesting is that Brandon Lebel, like, um, like uh, feminist voice philosophers like Adriana Cavarero, consider voices to be for something, and voices to be for other people, yeah. whereas yeah. most of the 20th century you know, philosophy or, or psychoanalysis of the voice is this it's ter- this terrible thing that falls out of our body and betrays us, and we have to lie on couches to be analysed. And oh my goodness, yeah, you know, it, it, that's my summation of 20th century mm-hmm. voice psychoanalysis. I'm not a fan, clearly. So what I like about Labelle is that he he can, um, as with others, considers the voice as a gift not just as meaning making or linguistic but as a as a sound object which travels from me to you Mm. and offers something so in the act of voicing there is also that formation of sociality to use your word and community building which again is because is is fleeting non-visual much more daring we might say Sorry, that was long And I
1: actually, no, I, I wanted to uh, go back to the question because you were asking spe- specifically about sociality in relation to this definition from Labelle about uh, materiality. And I, and I was hearing that question. I don't know whether you intended it like that, but, but in relation to the condition we were in, in during COVID, yes. Um, I mean, so... It is a very honest question. I think we, we, I mean, we can have a whole, whole panel on that. Um, uh, Yeah. Or another podcast episode. (laughs) Um, How can I briefly answer it? I think, yes, there is an aspect of space there that is really interesting. The space being the virtual space we were, we were mostly inhabiting through Zoom. And how does that, Affect the sense of sociality and the sense of sociality we are convening in the virtual space versus the sense of sociality we might be having or not having in our actual space. It's, it's very interesting. I, I, I can only just uh, uh, admire the question. I don't have a coherent answer right now, but we can think about that. Yeah.
0: This was Staging Sound, a conference panel with Duschka and Lynn recorded in Munich on the 13th of January at the conference Crisis Arts, hosted by the School of Arts at the Ludwig Maximilians Universität in München and supported by the Center for Advanced Studies. Thank you for listening.